You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, September 27th, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. We come to what scholars say is the, the literal, historical, and theological crux of the entire book of 1 Samuel as the whole. In fact, from a symmetry perspective, this chapter and then the first couple of verses of this chapter are the symmetrical center of the book of 1 Samuel. And these verses narrate for us this morning on the one hand, the beginnings of the shift of power from King Saul to David. But on the other hand, and in maybe an eternally more significant way, something else is happening. These verses present us with a, a significant, and at the same time, I want to use the word crucial, theological reality. You see, the writer of 1 Samuel doesn't present this shift in power in this story to us in, in political terms and political means. He doesn't narrate for us all the, the goings-ons that happen in the court when power begins to shift. He, he presents this beginning of the shift in power in theological terms. It's presented to us in the presence and the absence of God's Spirit. As we ended last week, if we're watching it like a story, remember we're watching it like a show, the credits were beginning to reel as Samuel, who has obeyed the Lord and gone to Bethlehem to the tribe of Jesse, has poured the oil on the head of Jesse's youngest and most unexpected son, David. And the writer said it's at that point that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, flooded David. It's a great word, flooded David. And this is an example of how sometimes a sermon can get in the middle of a good story because the very next verse where we begin this morning is that the Spirit of the Lord has now departed from Saul. As it has flooded David, the Spirit of the Lord has flowed away from Saul. And what I want us to consider this morning, as a, as a bigger overarching reality as we read the story, because the story plays a very important role in the larger story of the book, but I want us to consider in our minds and our hearts as we go through the story, a bigger reality at play in the story and in our hearts, and I want us to consider this morning just how aware are we of the activity of God the Holy Spirit? Just how aware are we of His activity and how aware are we of our dependence upon Him? An awareness that would lead us to a right appreciation of Him. I don't know the right word. I spent probably 20 minutes in between these services trying to figure out the right word because I think appreciation gets so misused and hollowed out in our day today. But I can't think of a better one at the moment. If I'm really honest, I think if we'd be quiet with our own hearts, we'd have to admit that we, as God's people today, chronically underappreciate or overlook the work of God the Holy Spirit. I think in part because we don't live with an active awareness of just how dependent upon Him we are. And so before we dive into the details of the story, I think it's important to lay a right foundation for our hearts to keep this overarching perspective in mind. It's just like when you go about to build any great building, the most important part is the foundation. 
I mean, it's the most unglamorous part of the whole thing. Everybody wants to focus on the windows and the doors and the paint and the outside, the siding, the brick, but the most important part is the foundation. And so this morning, I want us to take the, the first part of our time together to actually lay a foundation of awareness of the work of God the Holy Spirit in the lives of his people that we might come to this story and again recognize our lack of awareness and at times our lack of dependence that God in his grace might rectify it for us this morning. So if you'll permit me a few minutes, we're going to take a little time to lay a foundation. One of the best books that I have read on this entire subject is by a theologian named Bruce Ware. It's called God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's a book about the relationships and the Godhead. And he begins it this way. There is one God and only one God, eternally existing and fully expressed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Godhead is equally God, and each is eternally God, and each is fully God. Not three gods, but three persons of the one Godhead. That is the historic understanding of the person of the Godhead. Now, here's the thing I want us to consider this morning. God the Father sent his Son into the world to bring about the salvation of his people. And in all that Jesus did, in all that Jesus said, Jesus did everything according to the will of his Father. How did he actually do that? How was Jesus actually able to do that? Well, in Acts chapter 10, Peter said that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Why? For God was with him. The Bible exposes us to the reality that Jesus lived his life, he resisted temptation, he performed miracles, he spoke with authority, and he accomplished the purposes of God the Father through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was behind the obedience and the power of Christ. And the Bible makes very clear to us, not only was the Holy Spirit behind the obedience and the authority of Christ, all that the Holy Spirit does, he does in order for Jesus to be glorified. In John 16, Jesus says, I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them all now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Later on, Paul is going to make it even more clear and more personal. In the letter he writes to the church in Corinth, and Paul says, No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It is the work of the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to bring about the reality of conviction in the heart of a man, a woman, or a child that Jesus is indeed the King. It is the work of God the Holy Spirit that Jesus be glorified in the lives of his people. But how else does the Holy Spirit go about seeing that Jesus is glorified? Well, one primary way he does it is through the inspiration and the revelation and the illumination of God's Word. I don't know how aware you and I live with the reality that it's the work of the Holy Spirit that inspired the hearts and minds of biblical writers to write what would be the very words of God. And what is the central focus of the very words of God? The Son of God. 
In fact, Peter says in 2 Peter 1, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is the same Spirit of God that moved in the hearts and minds of the writers of Scripture so that when they sat down to write what was in their mind and heart to write, they would write that which would become the very words of God. That's why Paul could say that all Scripture is breathed out by God, precisely as Peter made clear, because men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that inspired writers to not only write these God-breathed words, but it is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to illuminate these words to our hearts and minds that we might understand them. That is an act of His work and God's grace. So as Bruce Ware will say in his great book, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, stands behind the Scriptures. And what the Spirit wants to talk about most centrally is Jesus. What we have most centrally to communicate is Jesus. The larger story and emphasis that the entirety of God's Word communicates is about Jesus. The heart of the good news that we have to tell other people, the central story of it all, is first and foremost about Jesus. So God's own inspired words will say that the good news of Jesus Christ is this, that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. God's own word says that the good news by which we are saved is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared. Paul will go on to say in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The good news that is the central message of the entirety of the God-breathed word of Scripture is the good news of Jesus. His sinless life, his substitutionary and atoning death, his victorious resurrection to newness of life, and the news that by faith in him we can be saved. It's why as we begin every single Sunday, as we open up God's word in some form or another, I pray that God would do the miracle that only he could do. That he, by his Holy Spirit, working through his inspired word, would help us to see and marvel at his glory in the work of his Son. It's not only the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to inspire and to reveal the word of God about the Son of God. It's not only the work of the Holy Spirit to empower the Son of God to act in accordance with all that the Father has demanded and, and called It's the work of the Holy Spirit that enables the message of the gospel to go out into the whole world. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for what the Father had promised because, Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The spirit that they were to wait on was the very same spirit that empowered Jesus, the very same spirit Jesus promised would lead them into all truth and would accomplish all that he has promised through his disciples to bear witness of him throughout the world. So the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is going to go forth as God has commanded, as the spirit of God empowers the disciples of Jesus to proclaim the good news about him. But the spirit also glorifies the son by empowering the message of his greatness and grace to go to the ends of the earth. 
And the Spirit of God and the Spirit of the Lord also glorifies the Son. And what theologians will call the regeneration and the sanctification of disciples. You see, it's the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to take a heart that was dead to the realities of God, alienated from God, rebellious towards God. It's the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to bring new life to that heart. God's Word says it's the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to awaken a dead heart and to open blind eyes so that a person may now see the glory of God in the face of Jesus and not just see it, but respond positively with joy, beginning to increasingly love what he formerly despised and despising what he formerly loved. So again, Bruce Ware, so much more succinct than me. He says, not only does the Spirit reveal and inspire the word of Christ, empower the proclamation of the gospel of Christ, regenerate sinners to behold the beauty of Christ, and lead us to place our hope and faith in Christ, the Spirit also works mightily now to conform us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. The very thing Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3. And we, with, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So the Spirit of God works in believers to accomplish the work of the Father to make His children more and more like His Son. And what does Paul say the Spirit of God does in the hearts of Jesus' disciples to make them more and more like Jesus? He focuses our attention on the beauty and the glory of Christ. And as He focuses, helps us to see the beauty and glory of Christ, you and I are compelled to become more and more like Him. From one degree of glory to another, Paul says. It's the Spirit of God in us that aids us to see Jesus more clearly because God created us to want to become more like what we adore. And so it is the Spirit of God in the hearts of Jesus' disciples that enables us, aids us, helps us to see Jesus more clearly and more gloriously because the more we do, the more we'll want to be like him the more we'll long to look like him. And the same spirit that helps us to see him more clearly is then at work to make us more like him. Again, it's why I pray every time we're here when we begin. Please, do the miracle that only you can do by your spirit to help us to see, as only you can, your glory in your son that we might long to become more like him. That's the expectation I bring into this moment. It's the expectation and the hope and the eager desire that I have as we gather together. And I hope you do too, but I think if we're honest, we don't come with that kind of expectation because we don't have that kind of awareness of just what God is doing by His Spirit. How aware are you of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? How aware of your dependence upon him are you? We take just a few minutes to go through just what we went through. There's so much more. But as you just hear that and you hear the work of God the Holy Spirit in our lives for God's glory and our joy, can you begin to sense as a follower of Christ what it would feel like, what it would be like if he hadn't taken up residence in our heart? if he wasn't at work by his power conforming us into the image and likeness of his son? 
I would be a train wreck. I would be a wreck. If you can begin to taste a bit of just how dependent we really are on his spirit and just how devastating it would be to not have him, you're starting to get a sense of the bigger picture of the story this morning. Because we've got to taste that a little bit if we're going to taste the reality of what's happening here. It left off with the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, flooding onto David. And it picks up this morning with the Spirit of the Lord departing from Saul. We've got to understand that in, in the Old Testament, in the work of the Holy Spirit, all that we just went through was really more a New Testament post-Pentecost reality. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon particular people at particular times to give them the authority and the ability to do particular things. In the Old Testament, you most often come across the Spirit of the Lord coming upon people to rule, so kings, prophets to speak or prophesy, judges to deliver God's judgment. You'll come across it with artists, though, to build and do great things that God has commanded them to do. you find that in the building of the tabernacle. The Spirit of the Lord came upon artists to do that work. But the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, would come upon particular people at particular times to enable them to do particular things. The Spirit of the Lord had come upon Saul when he was anointed back in chapter 10. It didn't mean that Saul had been born again to a living hope through a saving faith. It meant that he had been equipped with the authority and the ability for his calling. But as we went back through the story last week to catch everybody back up, we saw that Saul ended up rejecting the word of the Lord. He sinned against God. He would not repent for his sin. In an act of discipline and judgment, God declared through Samuel to Saul that God has rejected him as king of Israel. And now we see that discipline playing itself out, that judgment playing itself out. The Lord now removes his spirit from Saul and his authority to lead, his ability to do that is fading not only that, the Lord has allowed a harmful or distressing spirit to torment Saul. It's an act of judgment or discipline on God's part for Saul's sin. But we have to remember as we're going through this, so much ink has been spilled on this, and we have to remember that going through this, even, even in this, when God would use enemies of his people to bring his judgment on his people, when God will discipline his people, there's an aspect to it that it's an act of mercy as well. Would that Saul repent. Would that the distress that will come upon Saul, the torment that comes upon Saul, and we're going to see it play out in his moods and his emotions and his actions, he's going to become increasingly erratic, emotional, unpredictable, and violent. Would that the torment that comes upon Saul lead him to Repentance. Not that he would be restored again as king, but that he might run his race and finish his race well. As the story goes on, you'll see in verse 15 that Saul's servants, those who attended to Saul at this point, even recognized that what was happening in the one that they had spent their time with and served ultimately has a theological reason behind it. Saul's servants said to him, Behold, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. 
Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to go seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he'll play it and, and you'll be well. I love how Gordon Ketty's Scottish pastor, spoke about this verse. He said, having diagnosed the need for Saul to undergo heart surgery, his attendants proceeded to prescribe him a sedative. In, in many places, many commentaries, many sermons, it, this is, becomes the excursus to the value and the impact of something like musical therapy. And, and that's not the primary intended point. Now, science has already shown us the efficacy of musical therapy in certain situations. is not to argue that reality, but that's not the main point. The writer has been very clear to us, even through Saul's attendance, that there is an underlying theological problem with what we're seeing in Saul. Saul has sinned against the Lord, and Saul has not repented. A sound strategy for Saul that would come from his attendance would be to plead with him to repent before the Lord. That's not what Saul gets. Saul gets therapy, not repentance. And we can talk about that later. Verse 17, that sounds good to Saul. Listening to good music sounds better than dealing with the reality of my sin. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And the role this story plays is is starting to to take shape. This is an episode of just deep irony in the story. If any of you are from the South and you like to cook good gravy on a Sunday afternoon, you know you got to put it over the flame and keep your eye on it because it starts to thicken, but then it'll get so thick it's got to get to the right spot you pull it off the stove. This story, the irony, is starting to thicken. And we're going to keep our eye on it as we go through it. Saul says, provide for me a man. Literally the same phrasing that God had said earlier in chapter 16 when he said, I provided for myself a king. And one of Saul's attendants, a young man in verse 18, answers, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who's skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. This is the observation of one of Saul's attendants. I mean, I shake my head sometimes if it wasn't so real in the way it plays out today. They recognize there's a theological underpinning to what's happening with Saul. They recognize the presence of the Lord over here, but yet they don't have the presence of mind to call Saul to repent. It's a whole other cognitive dissonance for the way the church works today, but we don't know how this attendant understood these things about David, because here's the thing. When the, hist- when the writer of, of 1 Samuel put this together, he, he puts this history together and this story together in a direction, and so he wants to put these two things back to back, the spirit flooding on David, the spirit departing Saul. But from the point in which Samuel anoints David to the point to which Saul calls him to his service, we don't know how long it's been. So there's a good chance that David just kept on tending to the flocks, Caring for them, watching over them. We'll learn stories later on in the next couple of chapters, protecting them against wild animals, bears. There's a high likelihood that in that time, as, as David, his brothers, the other men of the area of Bethlehem would stand out on the, the village and tribal borders, standing against any tribe that would want to encroach, that David stood with courage. We don't know exactly how Saul's attendants came to learn of David, but he did. And 
the portrait that he gives of this man is just something to just let sit for a second. Especially consider his youth. But he knew David as one honed with skill in his instrument. Now, if you know anybody who's good at a musical instrument, you know that part of what has gotten them to that place is an intrinsic discipline. Only so much can be put on people. But it takes an amazing discipline to be practiced like this. And and there must have been that in David. He's known for his valor. Valor is, is really just bravery or courage in the face of danger. Somehow this attendant must have heard of what David would do in the fields to protect the sheep. He's a man of war, prudent in speech. What a statement. I mean, we know from this side of the story just the fact that it's out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And David's characterized by a man who's prudent in his speech with a good presence. He, he brought good to those who were in his surrounding. When David was with people, there was a good presence. There was a benefit to him being there. The key to it being the Lord is with him. Very important. We'll come back to that description in a minute. Got to stick with the story though. Verse 19, therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse. And he said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And the irony is getting thicker. Saul literally just commanded his servants to bring his replacement to him. The one whom we learned back in chapter 15, the word of the Lord in Samuel was going to be better than Saul the one to whom the kingdom had already been given. And so in verse 21, David comes. He comes to Saul and he enters into his service. I need you to read it like a human for just a minute. I mean, this is a a transitional story. There's a lot going on. I, I realize we have a background I've got to circle back to, but I want you to read it for just a minute like a human. Imagine what it was like for David, this young man, to change scenery the way he just did. I mean, he is a man of the field, of the pasture. He is the unexpected, inconsequential son of Jesse, so inconsequential even to his own family, his father doesn't even bring him to the sacrifice when Samuel comes to town. Doesn't even think to bring him in, right? He's out in the fields taking care of the sheep. He's playing his instruments. He smells like animals. He's dirty. He's out there. He's inconsequential. Now he's going from the pasture to the palace. He's dealing with lazy sheep and ornery goats, all of a sudden dealing with political power players, maneuvering and angling that he's never had to deal with before. I mean, it is the classic story that you always hear about. It is the country simpleton being taken and dropped off in the middle of New York City. The expectation is that he is just going to get chewed up and spit out. But the Lord who is the Spirit, is with him. And so the writer tells us that Saul loved David greatly. And David became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, David's father, saying, let David remain in my service, for he's found favor in my sight. And an interesting pattern is being developed. 
I'll say it now because it's going to come to play as the story keeps going. Saul is going to continue to diminish mentally, emotionally, and even in authority. David is going to continue to rise. Saul's attachment to David is going to increase before it hits a breaking point. And we're going to see it cycle over and over and over again. But how did David serve Saul in such an impactful way? Well, verse 23, it says, Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, and Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. And again, the irony is thick. King Saul is now dependent upon his anointed replacement for his own emotional and spiritual need. And I have to wonder, David's time in Saul's presence like this, serving Saul, not just with the music, but as an armor bearer, we have an idea of how many years this continued on for, we get to later in the story. I don't know the exact number, but just, I have to think that Saul's attendants understood the change in demeanor that they experienced and watched with Saul, had a theological reason behind it. They understood that the Lord was with David. And I have to understand that David in Saul's presence came to understand the theological reality behind the erratic nature of Saul's behavior. He understood what Saul had done. The story of Saul's disobedience wasn't a secret. And I have to wonder, of all the things that David could have learned in that really unique apprenticeship, that internship he had with Saul, how to lead, how not to lead, who to trust, who not to trust. I have to wonder if part of what we read later in the Psalms that David would write and the way that he would respond to his own sin and his own failings didn't come from lessons he learned from the Lord while he attended Saul. In Psalm 32, David writes, My spirit groans day and night because of my sin. Your hand is heavy upon me. Yet David writes, I acknowledge my sin to you. I didn't cover it. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I wonder how much of that, the confidence in who God has continued to be and promised to be for his people, grew in David's heart as he served and witnessed the opposite in Saul. He's there serving him faithfully and diligently. And if it was a show, the most beautiful strings would play. Somehow, whoever was playing Saul, a good actor can do it. You can see the physical distress, the physical turmoil, the physical pain on people's faces. We'd see it start to diminish. Fall away as the music played. And the credits would begin to roll. It's a tremendous piece of writing. David The one we have already learned is the man of God's own choosing. The one who is God's choice against all human expectation is now the man of double choice. He's not just the man of God's own choosing, but we see he's now the man of Saul's own choosing. And this chosen one is the one who keeps the current reigning king from falling apart. An amazing story. Dale Davis, the Old Testament scholar, says the chosen king is not a threat, but he's a means of grace to Saul. 
but the sadness will remain. Saul has therapy for his heart, but not the Spirit of God. And I thought to myself when I read read that, is there a sadder description than that? And as I sat with it for a minute, I had to think, is there not a better description of our day? Saul's got therapy. He's got all the means to make it feel better. He's got therapy, but, but not the Spirit. And, and I've just thought about how easy, even it is in our own context, those with whom the Spirit of God dwells and is at work and alive, but yet we live so often unaware of His presence, of His activity, of His power. How often we, even on this side of the cross and Pentecost, find ourselves so dependent on something other than the work of His Spirit in our lives for our well-being. I have nothing against therapy. I think therapy is extremely valuable. When our own son died, we spent many months in therapy and counseling. I think it's tremendously valuable. But the issue with Saul was his sin. The issue with what was going on in his heart had to do with his own disregard for God and disobedience towards God. I think sometimes today we're too quick to glance over the work of God the Holy Spirit bringing us to a place of conviction and look for something to make us just feel better. When really he is providing for us the direction and the path to the remedy that we need. Saul had therapy, but he didn't have what he needed. And as those who would hear the story read and follow the story the way it is, if they only see as man sees, like we learned last week, all of God's purposes behind all these different incidents and factors remain hidden. But David is going to become king. God's spirit was on him for that very purpose. Because when you see the story as God sees, All these little factors had a part to play in his larger plan. A growing awareness of the work of God the Holy Spirit who intends in all that he does to glorify the Son enables one to read the story and understand that even David, the man of God's own choosing, the one who will love and lead Israel, the one who displayed such courage, such valor, such humility, The humility to serve a a maddening boss. You think you've got a bad boss. A maddening boss who will in turn turn to try to take his life. But to serve with such respect and humility, to have such presence, even he is going to leave Israel longing for something else. There must be a greater one to come. Which is why as we understand the story as God sees, The prophet Isaiah is going to come along in a matter of generations and he's going to look forward to another day when a shoot will come from the root of Jesse, one with whom the Spirit of the Lord will dwell. And Isaiah says this, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon this one to come, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor 
and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Sounds a whole lot like the song Hannah sang in the beginning of 1 Samuel. The hope to the one God's people continued to look forward to. The taste of which they began to get in this man, David, who we're going to see as he begins to take his space in the story of Israel in the weeks to come. See, 1 Samuel 16, it's the symmetrical center of the book, but it is the entire background. The fulfillment of this promise that God has made when we see it as the Lord sees. And it will be fulfilled with another who will be born in Bethlehem, the promised one, the anointed one, one born in the town of David, whose purpose remained hidden from those who could not see as the Lord sees even in his own day. But he is the one in whom we marvel when the same spirit who was with David and the same spirit who was with Christ opens up our blind eyes to see God's glory in the face of King Jesus and enables us to joyfully bow our knee and long to be more like him. It's the same spirit with David, the same spirit with Jesus that works in us to enable us to begin to see more and more the way that God sees so that you and I can marvel at the work of the greater David the greater shepherd king, and long to reflect, long to look like, long to make much of with our lives this one who has done so much to save us. And it happens by the work of the very same spirit. How aware are you and I of the work of the spirit of the Lord in our lives? And Honestly, how much do you sense your dependence upon him? It's this same spirit when he opens up our eyes to see God's glory in Jesus. This same spirit that was with David and with Jesus. It's this same spirit, the Bible says, that now anoints us, takes up residence in us, and unlike Those in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God takes up residence in us and doesn't leave. He takes up residence in our heart, removing the heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh, a heart that beats for the things that delight in the Lord, a heart that beats for the things that bring God glory. You and I share in the same anointing because we share in the same Spirit And this anointing makes you and I in this day ambassadors for our king. So you and I come to stories like this. And here is the biggest, the burden I had as I was coming to this, thinking about one, on one hand, our awareness of our dependence upon the spirit, watching how the spirit worked in the story. But on the other hand, our tendency to come to stories like this and come to places like we talk about with David. And we see this man of such reputable character and We see his patience and his courage and his valor and his humility. We see him serving in difficult situations with difficult bosses and and having to honor them and respect them. And we see him being a man of good speech and presence. And we tend to walk out from here going, how do I get from David to me? How do I leave this place 
and take on more of that thing I see in David. And on one hand, that's okay. But here's the thing. We can't go from David to us. The good news is the spirit that was with David, the spirit that was with Christ, has taken up residence in our heart to open up our eyes and fix our eyes and our heart on the greater David who did what even this David couldn't do. So that as we see this David, he helps us to see the one who did greater things so that you and I can see him and long to be like him and realize that by God's grace, he's at work making us like him and our awareness of the Spirit's work in our hearts and presence in our hearts grows and our dependence and delight upon him grows And as he continues to work in us to make us more like the one he fixes the eyes of our heart upon, you and I are enabled by his grace and the work of his power within us to be the ambassadors he's called us to be. So it's not serve your boss like David. Yes, that's important. It's not speak well like David. Yes, that's important. But there was one who did it perfectly in a way David couldn't do. And it's the same spirit that was with David and with Christ that's now with us and in us, fixing our eyes on this one who was done in our place and in David's place what we could never do. And he fixes our eyes on him so that we can say we want to be like him and we know that's the work of the spirit to conform the image of our hearts to be like him. Are we aware? How aware are we of the active work of God the Holy Spirit in our hearts? Do you sense your dependence? This is the grace of God and the kindness of God. As he opens up our eyes, takes up residence, and from one degree of glory to another makes us more like his son. Without the spirit of the Lord, Jesus said, we can do nothing. There is no greater blessing than the indwelling presence of God the Holy Spirit. And Paul would tell the church in Rome in, in Romans 14 that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Friends, maybe this morning is our time as we take a minute to reflect, to ask God, to plead with God, to wake us up to our dependence on His Spirit. If we have been unaware of just how dependent we are upon His Spirit, not only for our very life, but to be conformed to the image and likeness of His Son, maybe this is the morning we ask God to wake us up to a greater sense of our awareness of our dependence upon Him so that in the fullest sense of the word, we might stop underappreciating Him underappreciating an entire third of the Godhead simply because we live with a level of unawareness of just how dependent and active for our joy and God's glory he is in our hearts and lives. Maybe this morning is the morning we plead with God to help us see it, cherish him, treasure him, and walk out of here with a greater sense of delight in what he has done and continues to do for us.
Friends, it is God's good pleasure for Jesus to be glorified in you and through you for your joy. And he does it by his spirit. Let's stop underappreciating it. Let me pray for us this morning. I'm going to give you a minute to just reflect and and allow you in silence to, to deal with the Lord and let him deal with you this morning. Father, we thank you that we come to moments like this, you know, in our own humanity, not really expecting much, expecting that the music be in tune, expecting that the sermon be able, expecting that the temperature be moderate, and maybe not coming with much expectation that you, by your Spirit, would work through your Word in our time together as we encourage each other in the words of our songs and the reading of your Word in the times of prayer, that you would do something miraculous and mighty for your glory and our joy. Lord, forgive us for our lack of expectation. Forgive us for our lack of awareness. Forgive us for living with such a low sense of dependence when we're dependent on you for everything. Lord, this morning we ask in the next couple of minutes of silence and stillness that you would wake us up to our dependence upon you and your consistent provision for us by your Spirit. For those who are here this morning who have never turned from their sin depended upon you for their life, for their salvation, for their security, for their hope in eternity. God, we ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would awaken their hearts, open their eyes, remove that heart of stone and in turn give them a heart of flesh that beats for the things that delight in you. And they would walk out of here this morning with a fresh awareness, not only of your kindness and grace, but their ongoing dependence upon you for joy. Lord, we ask this morning that you would do that miracle which only you can do in our heart by your spirit for Jesus' glory and our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.